So I'm, I'm thrilled, as always, to be able to share God's Word with you today, and uh, we're going to talk about peace today. And I could spend the next half hour, probably, trying to convince you that there is no peace on earth. But I really don't need to do that, do I? I mean, pick your terrorist attack, pick your war, pick your natural disaster, your financial meltdown, your political crisis. One or more of them threatens our peace every day. In every sphere of life, in every location on earth, for every person on earth, there are a staggering number of opportunities to lose our peace. And it doesn't even need to be on that, that large of a scale. And what about a frustrating meeting at work or an argument with your spouse, being late for an appointment, getting stuck in traffic? What, what stresses you out? What do you worry about? What feeds your anxieties? Well, if you're like me, it's probably more than one thing. But all of them are vying to ruin our peace. So, I mean, how do we deal with this? I want to propose to you today that there are fundamentally three ways that we can deal with a lack of peace in our lives. We can distract ourselves from it, we can despair of it, or we can fight against it. Now, distraction is the easiest by far, and I would argue among Westerners it's probably the most common. Our technology today gives us the ability to be entertained and occupied with something, be it trivial or noble, every waking moment of our lives. I carry in my pocket a source of unlimited entertainment. Our computers, our TVs, our phones, our video game systems, they provide endless, inexhaustible entertainment. Think of the hundreds of billions of dollars spent every year, the millions of jobs, all focused and devoted on entertaining us. And never mind our hobbies, our careers, our education. Never mind our alcohol, our drugs, our food, our sexuality. We can move from distraction to distraction to distraction, jump from escape to escape to escape, and crowd out any chance of thinking or feeling the lack of peace we have in our hearts. As soon as that lack of peace creeps up, just push it out with a check on Facebook, drown it in another beer, get lost in another two hours of work, get to the next level on Angry Birds. <laughs> now, I'm not saying we should never be entertained or that it's bad to take a break from the realities of life every now and then. In fact, it's a healthy thing to do in a healthy way, of course. But what I am saying is that that's not real peace. That's busyness. It's distraction. It's escape. Now, our second option for dealing with a lack of peace is despair. We, we hang our heads. We lose hope. Or we just become emotionally dead or apathetic to everything around us. Maybe we're stoic or detached, but we resign to a life of strife and unrest and turmoil. Lastly, we can fight it. We can labor to control all the variables and circumstances in our lives. We can try to be smart enough, work hard enough, take no risks for fear of losing peace. 
We can fight for peace in the world and in our lives. Now, again, this is no bad thing necessarily, especially as believers. We should be agents of peace in the world. But the very fight for peace can rob us of peace. We can even fight for a lack of peace by by deluding ourselves into thinking that we actually have control over our lives. As if the staggering number of contingencies and circumstances that swirl around us each day are somehow within our grasp to control. Now, truth be told, on any given day, we're probably a mix of distraction, despair, and fight. But praise be to God that there is another option. And that's found in our text today. So if you have your Bible, turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 8. Luke is the third book in your New Testament. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 8, and read through verse 15. Listen carefully with me to what God's word says. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So this is a familiar story to us all. But I think with its familiarity, we've forgotten or maybe neglected some of its punch. So let me start by setting the stage here. If you know your history really well, it's hard to miss here the interplay between this text and the Roman Empire. The angels announce good news to the shepherds. Now that word here, the Greek word for good news, is euangelion, which is where we get our word for evangelism. And what's interesting here is that that word was used by the Roman government to announce the birth or ascension of a new emperor. When a new emperor was crowned, the emperor's messengers would go around the kingdom announcing the euangelion, the good news of this new emperor. And there are actually inscriptions that have been found announcing the good news about Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor at the time of Jesus' birth. And one of Augustus's claims to fame was that he ushered in what is known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace And this is a period of history that starts with Augustus' reign in about 27 B.C. and lasts to about 180 A.D. And it's marked by relatively few conflicts in the Roman Empire, very little military expansion. It's a time of peace. And so the Roman propaganda at the time 
heralds Augustus as the king who brings peace. Augustus was referred to as a savior, as a lord. And here in this text, we have the same language, the same themes are running through it. So we read this arresting announcement of a king. And to the Jews, not just any king, mind you, but the king, the Messiah from David's line, the promised, hoped-for, deliverer, savior. And this is presented in stunning form to these unsuspecting shepherds. And so in one sense, there's all this kingly language here. Good news, savior, peace, Lord. That's emperor talk. But it's clearly a different kind of king. And over the past few weeks, Sean has pointed out how deeply ironic the whole affair is. Something is different about this king. A baby among some animals? And this baby is born to some unimportant peasant in some insignificant town? inhabited by some of the many conquered and marginalized peoples in the Roman Empire? And this announcement comes to shepherds? Despised even among their own people? Uneducated, poor, peasant farmers? Nobody would ever write it this way. Now, if that's not enough to tip us off that there's something different about this king, all you have to do is read the rest of Luke's gospel, and it's pretty clear. Jesus is a different kind of king. Normal kings spend their lives being served. Jesus comes to serve. Normal kings don't live among the poor and powerless. Jesus spends his whole life among them. Normal kings live in palaces. Jesus wanders from town to town, no place to rest his head. Normal kings kill off their enemies. Jesus gives himself up to be killed for his enemies. Jesus is a different kind of king. And we see the shepherd's response in verse 15. Let's go see this. And even later in the text, in verse 20, they go tell others what they heard and saw. But look here at the heavenly response to this announcement. There's a heavenly response to the good news. The angel proclaims the good news in verse 10, but then in verse 13, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, if you look at this this text in verse 14, it's it's like an outburst. Suddenly, there's spontaneous praise and, and, and proclamation. It's like the angels can't contain themselves. They show us the heavenly response to the good news. And if you think about it a little bit, I mean, there aren't really many places in the Bible where we get a glimpse of how heaven reacts to God. I mean, maybe in Revelation there's certainly some spots. Maybe we get a glimpse in Isaiah. But other than that, it's really a rare thing. So I want to take a closer look at that. What's in this heavenly response? So the angels glorify God, and they proclaim peace to God's people. What kind of peace are they talking about? I mean, it it can't be a worldly peace. It can't be the kind of peace that the Roman Empire was talking about. No war, general civil order, prosperity. I mean, for one, history doesn't bear that out. I mean, Jesus' life is hardly a life of peace. There's conflict with religious leaders, conflict among his disciples, crowds trying to kill him, ultimately his own grisly execution. The rest of the New Testament doesn't smack at this kind of peace either. 
There's persecution, martyrdom, conflict in the church, imprisonment. Even after biblical times, the following 2,000 years of human history, as I made clear with my depressing little introduction, they aren't exactly peaceful. The Bible has to be talking about a different kind of peace. We've already established that Jesus is a different kind of king. It stands to reason that he brings a different kind of peace. A different kind of king must bring a different kind of peace. What is it? I'm going to tell you, but I need to make a few observations first. First off, this peace that is being talked about here is received peace. The text says, and on earth, peace to those who earn it. The text says, and on earth, peace to those who deserve it. No. The text says, and on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. It is peace that is given, not earned. I think for a moment of the broader context of the message. What are the angels announcing? They're announcing good news. It's news. It's not instruction. It's not a goal. It's not advice. It's not something to do. You don't do news or achieve it. And when I read in 2012 that Obama was reelected, I didn't think, okay, I, I better take that advice or I, I'm going to reject that. No, we don't do news. We respond to news. And so the peace that the angels are talking about here isn't peace that is achieved. It is peace that is received. But you object. Wait, wait a minute, Marcioni. The verse says, peace on earth to those on whom God's favor rests. How do we get his favor? Surely we must earn it, right? Well, let's see what the Bible says. I mean, the testimony of Scripture is that God's favor is graciously given. It is not earned. God says at the end of the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 2, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. James 4, 6, 1 Peter 5, 5, they both quote Proverbs 3, 34, and they say, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. God favors the humble. And what's important to know about that is that a humble person knows that they don't earn God's favor. Alan Verhey is a scholar at, at Duke University. He says it perfectly. He says the humble man is he who acknowledges that he has no claim on God, but that God has a total claim on him. They know it's given. They know they don't earn it because they're humble. And in contrast, pride is all about self-achievement, about earning and striving to win something. So a proud person works to earn something, to put God in his or her debt. So God owes them favor. I've gone to church. I've done my scripture memory. I've, I've kept free from sin this week, God. Now you owe me favor. He owes me a good life. I've earned it. No, not for a humble person. A humble person knows that they are at God's mercy, and they can never put God in their debt. So our text is announcing a different kind of king that brings a different kind of peace. This peace is not earned or worked for, 
but it is a peace that is given or received. So the second observation I want to make is that the peace is linked to God's glory. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So there's a parallel in in the text here. Heaven matches with earth, God matches with people. Our peace is in the same breath as God's glory. Because, and get this, our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. Our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. If we have peace in our hearts, it can't be separated from the glory of God. True peace necessarily glorifies God because he is the source of peace. Who has the peace in this text that we just read? Those on whom God's favor rests. The peace comes from God. Where does it come from in the rest of Scripture? Leviticus 26.6, God promises to grant peace to the Israelites if they follow him faithfully. In Haggai, as God is urging the Jews to rebuild the temple, he promises he will grant peace in that place. In this famous priestly blessing in Numbers 6.26, the priests are told to bless the people and say, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The people of the Old Testament understand that peace finally comes from God. And the New Testament writers are no different. Read the first few verses of just about any letter in the New Testament, and the blessing in the greeting is going to read something like, grace and peace to you from God and Jesus Christ. Jesus himself, the night before he was handed over to be killed, says to his disciples in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Our peace cannot be separated from God's glory because true peace comes from God. And if you think about it for any length of time, real peace has to come from God. It has to. This is true because the degree of our peace, it depends on where our peace rests. To say it differently, The extent of your peace will depend on the source of your peace. If your peace comes from knowing that you earn enough money to provide housing and food for your family, the source of your peace is your job. If your job is threatened, conflict with your manager, your industry isn't doing well, your company's not doing well, a new employee comes in who's smarter, works better than you, your peace is threatened. If your peace comes from knowing that you are loved, your relationships are the source of your peace. If your relationships are threatened, your peace is threatened. In other words, if your peace rests on circumstances, it's not real peace. If I'm at peace because I have a good job, because I'm healthy, or a combination of a whole list of things, take your pick, I can lose any one of them. I don't have real peace if the sources of my peace aren't secure. But if our peace ultimately rests with God, there's no limit to it. You might be rattled if you lose your job, but it's not going to devastate you. Because your ultimate peace can't be shaken. It can never be taken away. God doesn't change. He doesn't die. He's no slave to circumstances. He lacks no control over any corner of the universe. 
there's no electron spinning around some hydrogen atom in the farthest star that he does not own, nor is there any circumstance in your life that is not firmly in his hands. He knows no panic, no confusion, no trouble, no anxiety. He's unshakable, immovable, bedrock of true peace. And our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. They go hand in hand. Any peace you think you have that does not ultimately rest on God is subject to perish, change, or fade. So now that I've strung you along for the past 20 minutes, what kind of peace is it? Our text announces a different kind of king that brings a different kind of peace. This peace is received from God, and it cannot be separated from God's glory. What is it? The peace God gives is peace with himself. God solves the fundamental problem with all of humanity, namely that we are not at peace with the one who made us. And I am not oversimplifying. Everything, everything, every last bit of suffering, trial, sin, shame, death, hatred, injustice, fear, disease, and disaster has at its root the fact that humankind is not at peace with God. Our sin, our choice to reject him in favor of something else has fractured our relationship with him. We stand guilty before him as rebels, and we deserve no ounce of his favor and every ounce of his wrath. We're trapped in a cycle of sin and death from which we cannot escape by our own power. We can't undo a cycle of past sins by present good, nor can we even change our sinful hearts to want to do so. And so we're at odds with our maker. Everything we're meant to receive from him is broken. And the birth of Jesus is this huge milestone in God's Bible-long plan to solve the problem, sin and death, the separation of God's people from himself. How could any other peace compare? God is who we're made for. It's why we're here. What is the chief end of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Everything we run after in this world is really just a shadow of God. We're really after the reflection of God we see in that thing we're chasing. Take anything at all. Since we're kind of late in the message, let's keep it juicy and say sex. Why is our culture obsessed with sex? It's not because, it's it's because we long to feel loved, to feel desired, admired, special, belonging to somebody, not alone. That's something God offers. And in the extreme, inexhaustible supply that will never change. Are you after money? You're really just after security or provision. Or you're after status. Again, feeling valued, important, loved. Or you're after comfort, a lack of suffering. This is all stuff that God offers in abundance to us. Every desire, every need, the whole of us is meant and made for him. And if we don't have peace with him, nothing else is really going to matter much. 
Think of, of seeing a fish out of the water. Do you look at it struggling and flopping around and think, I should really give it some food? Or I better make sure its scales are, are free of parasites? No. First order of business for the well-being of that fish is getting it in the water because it was made for the water. And the fish isn't going to feel any peace until it's in the water. And we're made for God. If we do not have peace with him first, we'll never have any real peace to speak of. If your relationship with God was as important to you as it should be, it would absolutely unglue you to think of it being threatened. And to know that you had peace with him through Christ would be your greatest joy. If your main thing is God and your relationship with him, then your peace is going to be that you have a restored relationship with him. And my relationship with my wife is, is very important to me. If we're at fighting, if we're at odds with each other, it robs me of peace. If I have a disagreement with the cable guy, it doesn't bother me that much, right? I can sleep at night probably. So it should blow our heads off to think that we're at peace with God. That's peace. That's real peace. That's shalom, this, this, this Jewish word, you know, for, for peace, wholeness, completeness. It's everything we were ever made for. Our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. Do you believe that? I mean, you can chase after peace somewhere else, but it will be circumstantial at best. You can distract yourself to death. You can live in despair. Or you can accept, you can receive the peace that God offers that never fails, that never changes, that cannot be shaken. You can receive that through Jesus Christ. In the summer of 1861, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wife tragically died when her dress caught fire. And though he eventually recovered from the burns he suffered on his face as he tried to put out the fire. She died the next morning. About a year and a half later, during the Christmas of 1863, the Civil War was raging. And Longfellow's oldest son, Charlie, had been seriously injured earlier in the month, barely escaping paralysis. And Wadsworth heard the church bells on that Christmas day, and he heard people singing Peace on Earth. And he wrote this poem. I heard the bells on Christmas Day their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then, from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent 
and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Where does Longfellow land? Where does he find his peace in the midst of his despair? He finds it in God. His peace, God's glory. He understands that our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. As we respond today, and the worship team can come on up, I want to invite you to think about two things. First, do you have peace with God? Have you received his gift of salvation? Salvation that is made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Being restored in relationship to him through Jesus living the life that, that we could not live, that we should have lived. Receiving the punishment Dying the death we should have died. Restoring us to the one we were made for. Receive that peace today. Now come up and talk to me or, or another faith group leader up here, the person who brought you here, and we'll be, we'll be glad to pray with you. Receive that peace from God. And secondly, if you would identify as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian... Maybe now is a good time to examine where your peace really rests. Maybe ask God, is my peace ultimately found in the fact that I am infinitely loved and accepted by you? That through Christ, I'm your adopted son or daughter? Maybe this Christmas, you can experience that. You can appreciate that peace in a fresh new way. Because our peace cannot be separated from God's glory. Let's pray.